Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon and thank you for joining me for another episode in our series exploring tarot and its use as a tool for divination and spiritual growth. I do apologise if you can hear anything in the background by the way, they are demolishing a part of the town where we live very slowly but only seemingly on days when I'm trying to record something which is interesting Um, I don't know how they know, but if you can hear any weird, like, thunking in the background, it'll be the slow demolition of some council buildings, which is just part of the natural milieu that is living in the UK. So this is going to be a whistle-stop tour of the origins of tarot and how it came to be used in the way that it is used today. So there are, of course, numerous ways in which you can can explore the history of tarot as as we become very apparent it did not spring forth in the form that we know it of as today but it came to be used in a variety of ways and mean a variety of different things as a response to its differing historical context so i am approaching this from a very theoretical viewpoint although i have a growing interest in tarot and all the interesting ways that it can be viewed as an invaluable tool for self-discovery. I don't have a huge practical background with tarot. I have kind of dabbled with it a little bit in the past and it's something I want to learn more about. But if you're interested in a personal history from someone who has practiced tarot for a while, there are many people out there who have used it extensively and will be coming at it from a different viewpoint to me and they will bring in their own biases and preconceptions as do I. This is to say there is no one definitive form of tarot. There is no one way in which tarot can be used and employed and its history is irreducibly international. There is Italian tarocini, French tarot, Austrian Königrufen. <laughs> apologies for the pronunciation, and all the various ways in which tarot can be employed today. If you go anywhere that sells tarot decks, you will see all the different kinds of tarot decks that can be purchased, and they all reflect different ways in which tarot can be used. There are also differences in the suits, so the suits vary by region. So there are French suits in Northern Europe, Latin suits in Southern Europe, and German suits in Central Europe, just to name a few. The tarot, as it's come to be used as a divination tool, is synchronistic. It incorporates elements of Hinduism, Kabbalah, astrology, Christian imagery, Egyptian law, and this list grows every day as new methods are appropriated, reappropriated, and reincorporated into tarot. So one of the main sources of information I have used when researching this episode and this rich and complicated history was Helen Farley's excellent A Cultural History of Tarot, which I would highly recommend for anyone interested in tarot or just simply looking to learn more about sort of esoteric context as it's incredibly interesting and I really loved reading it. But without further ado... Let's have a little look at the history of tarot. Let's get into it. So for those who may not be aware, a tarot deck as it exists today, so the sort of accepted structure of the tarot deck is structured as follows. 
And it is this structure which we would compare older versions against. So it's important you have an idea of how a tarot deck is structured, even if you don't know off by heart all the images that may be associated. So it is a deck of 78 cards and slightly larger than, slightly larger in size and in deck size than the regular decks of playing cards that you might be familiar with. The tarot deck structurally extends a regular deck of playing cards with a set of distinctive trumps. So the trumps referred to in esoteric circles as the 22 major arcana or the triumph or trump cards as we were referred to them in their early context. These are the cards with the full allegorical artwork which we use to distinguish tarot from other forms of card games. So artwork for the number or pip cards came much later. Tarot, up until very, very recently, when we refer to the major arcana or arcana, we're referring to these trump or triumph cards. So these cards featured imagery of well-known archetypes and were most of the time intended to be structured in the deck in a specific order and they illustrated a variety of concerns and beliefs of the time so they changed along with their context and the evolving concerns of the time. So it is through reference to these trump cards that we can find documentary evidence of the game of tarot being played and trace its origins. The rest of the tarot deck is made up of the 56 minor arcana cards So arcana or arcana uh, is the Latin word for secrets. So the 56 minor arcana cards we can see as the relative to our regular deck of playing cards. These are the suits that we are all kind of familiar with, but they have been transformed in a variety of different forms, so they will have different names. So the suits might be called cups or pentacles or swords. Again, depending on the region, In general, this part of the deck pretty structurally similar to a regular deck of playing cards. So many modern interpretations, the Fool is another part of the deck that we use to distinguish it from other decks of playing cards of the time. And the Fool as an allegorical representation has a special significance. In general, it is not numbered. It stands alone in the deck similar to how a joker does, but with a completely different use. So it can be seen variously as a reflection for us. So the fool as a sort of morally neutral person, no beginning, no end, sort of untethered from the rest of the deck. They may present a sort of framework where you can view the fool or the person playing the game as passing through a spiritual journey from birth to death through the major arcana. In the game of tarot, he may have represented the player in this way, in their sort of game of life. So the uses and meanings of tarot are various, and it exists as an invaluable social record of the preoccupations of a whole range of peoples. Nonetheless, tarot as it is used today as a form of cartomancy or using cards for the purposes of fortune telling does not have as long or as documented a history as you may assume. So the myths around tarot 
describe it variously as a product of ancient Egyptian wisdom or as an ancient cultural practice of the Romani peoples or as an extension of Kabbalah or mystical Judaism. One thing for certain, though, is that the modern impression of tarot is that of a tool encompassing elements of various religions and various spiritual paths. Most tarot decks borrow elements from a variety of religions and spiritualities, so Kabbalah, ancient Egyptian religions, Judeo-Christian imagery, and Buddhism, etc., But a blend of the aforementioned elements does not explain all that tarot is. You do not need to have immersed yourself in tarot as a practice to have an understanding of the kind of images that this particular visual tool contains. There are a number of famous and influential tarot decks that have entered popular culture to the point that even someone who has never encountered them as part of a deck will have familiarity with the imagery. The image of death, for example, or the wheel of fortune, the hanged man. These are images that borrow certain elements from established religions and beliefs, but are not fully explained by them. So, a history of tarot must explore the historical context from which tarot sprung to truly understand some of its more enduring imagery. So, the timeline of tarot as a card game. Despite what many people still choose to believe or erroneously believe, tarot does not trace its lineage back to ancient Egypt. So the legend goes that ancient Egyptian scholars encoded their hermetic knowledge and secrets within the disguise of the game of tarot, thus ensuring its survival past the fall of their civilization. The game was then supposedly entrusted to the Romani peoples, again, another perhaps erroneous detail. As a culture famous for card games and fortune-telling, they were entrusted with ensuring that the game lived on. It then follows that someone with the right skills or knowledge could decode the hidden wisdom of the tarot and reconstruct the book formed from its ordered cards often cited as the Book of Toth. This is the myth as circulated by Antoine Cordegebelin, a huge influential figure in the translation of tarot from a game to an occult tool. The legend of tarot, as Farley expands on in her work, says a lot about the cultural context from which modern tarot takes its meaning. Of course, when we talk about tarot today, we tend to talk of it in a mystical or occult context. Tarot the card game could hardly be more different. Still, we will begin with Tarot's formation as a card game and move on to its reappropriation as a divinatory tool as part of a process springing from, as you might have guessed, a rejection of the Age of Enlightenment. So this pre-Rosetta infatuation with all things Egyptian. And it also went along with the concurrent French occult revival. So tarot then evolved once more under New Age beliefs to break much of this association with the occult and position itself more as a tool for self-development and healing. And this is a context that many approach it from, this is a context I approach it from. But nevertheless, it came to life as a card game. 
And it's important to understand that it came to life as a card game because there is a lot to learn about its origin as a card game because it is still a cultural artifact. Again, it may clash with our idea of tarot as this ancient practice to know that it evolved from a version of our modern deck of playing cards and not the other way around. So there is another legend around tarot which explains the joker of the modern deck of playing cards as the last sort of vestigial remnant of the fool of tarot. But this is just, it's just simply wrong. And um, it clashes with the role and the meaning of the fool in tarot in basically all of its forms. So playing cards definitely came first and tarot is an evolution from it. And we can pretty concretely trace its lineage back to two Italian noble houses in Renaissance Italy. But as we said, this does not make it any less valuable and interesting a social document as we will come to explore. So Tarocci, or Trionfi, the game of tarot, first originated as a parlour game played by taking the dealt cards and creating stories with them. So from the very, very beginning, this idea of creating a narrative from these picture cards was already there, which is very interesting. So Trionfi is a derivative of the Italian for triumph. So with the famous trump cards or the pictorial cards, having the ability in the game of Trionfi to trump other cards. So hence trump in this association was in reference to some cards having powers over others. So Brescia around 1502 sees the first deck we have called Tarocco or Tarocco and the attribute Tarocco and the verb Tarocare are used regionally to indicate that something is fake or forged and this is a meaning that is directly derived from the Tarocci game as played in Italy in which Tarocco indicates a card that can be played in place of another card. So the naming of tarot in this era describes a method of play not some elevated use. We stress at this point tarot was simply a card game. But between 1440 and 1450, see the first documented tarot decks as we'd recognise them, where supplementary cards are added to an existing deck with allegorical illustrations or carte de triomphe triumph cards. So the oldest surviving cards are from this era, and the most complete deck that we have and therefore the most invaluable for understanding its earliest structure is the Visconti Forza tarot deck. So the Visconti Forza is the oldest existing mostly complete deck that we have where the Visconti family commissioned a gorgeous hand-painted and gold leaf deck for their personal use. So as implied by this tarot in its earliest forms was a pursuit of the wealthy as before the mass production of playing cards, they were elaborate and intricate examples of art. Even in their earliest forms, the tarot deck, the trumps of the tarot deck, may only number around 20 or so. This is still 20 individual artworks that have to be commissioned. It is believed that the tarot arrived in Italy, or at least the major arcana, and combined with already existing decks of playing cards, the ancestor to modern playing cards, the Mamluk deck of cards, which travelled into Europe from Asia following the invention of paper. 
So that's how old these playing cards are. So this deck entered through the bustling port of Venice and then spread through Italy through there. And there is evidence of the use of playing cards in China at least 200 years prior to any documented evidence in Europe. So the deck of ordinary playing cards is documented to have predated any appearance of tarot by at least 50 years, but we do not exactly know where the idea behind the ordered trumps came from. So this main difference that sets it apart as tarot, as opposed to a form of a regular deck of playing cards. The origin of this is still a little bit of a mystery. So tarot may also have been a derivation of tarot, the Latin, which came to be used in the 15th and 16th century as a synonym for foolishness. And again, it's believed that this association with foolishness is not a reflection of the practice of tarot as being viewed as a foolish pursuit, but due to the card of the fool, again, which stands alone in the tarot deck and is uniquely unnumbered in it. So the deck, as we mentioned, can be viewed as the fool's journey, meaning the inexperienced person at the beginning of their spiritual journey and then representing a symbol of new beginnings and opportunity. So hence the presence of the fool, as well as the ordered nature of the deck, can be seen as one of the ways in which tarot is distinguished from other cards in the surviving records. This is an aspect that persists in modern tarot, and I think it's an aspect that a lot of people are unaware of. It is something I wasn't aware of until I started looking into tarot, that there is a specific order to how the deck is composed, and I think that's very cool. And it is a detail that would be absolutely crucial to how the deck is approached and understood as time passes. For instance, the implicit order, so the different weights of the trump cards or allegorical picture cards in the Visconti Forza deck, underlines the fact, in Farley's words, the history of the Visconti family, and later the Forzas, was set against the cultural currents which characterised Renaissance Europe, and in particular, the Italian peninsula. This was a time dominated by suffering and death. However, like in later times, the early days of tarot coincided with the revival of classical learning, and a hearkening back to, in this case, classical Roman and Greek times. Quoting again, the idea of humanism arose which manifested as a celebration of the dignity of man and his place in the universe. So this is a theme that we will see resurfacing again and again. Tarot comes back to prominence or forms at a time when people are hearkening back to a simpler or a better time. But nevertheless, tarot sprung from a time plagued by disease, famine, death, and almost constant warfare. A third of Europe's population fell victim to the Black Death, a plague that touched every family on the continents. Therefore, it is believed that it shared a common base of imagery with the other media of the time, such as the mystery, miracle, and morality plays of the era. So these morality plays were often took aspects from religious stories and acted out man's fall from grace. They told an ordered story and were played out by tradespeople in public areas. So in your town square, they may be played out by 
the tanners, for example, would do a specific part of these plays. And they transformed certain religious symbols and certain religious um, icons into sort of cultural archetypes that were instantly recognisable. So the dance macabre, or dance of the deaf, was one such play. So it expanded on a theme that saturated the media of the time, including tarot, the indiscriminate and ever-present hand of death. So death surrounds us all and will come for us all one day, rich or poor. So the Italian nobles who potentially originated tarot, as far as we know, knew this more than others. So according to Farley, the Viscontis and later the Forzas instituted one of the first public health systems in Europe. So they built hospitals to care for the sick. They required that causes of death were investigated, verified and recorded. And they had a bit of a personal interest in pestilence. The Visconti Library houses many books on the subject of pestilence. They enacted strict quarantine measures as an attempt to weather successive waves of plague. They were in many ways obsessed with disease and death like many of their contemporaries. In Farley's words, death and the corresponding transience of life were never far from the minds of the Renaissance Italians. The memento mori, an object kept as a reminder of death, also echoed this grave sentiment. Life was fleeting and death inevitable. That death and suffering feature so heavily in the game of tarot, specifically the early form of the game of tarot, underlines this central belief that chance and luck have more of an impact on one's life than skill. So tarot could serve then not just as a pastime, but as a kind of memento mori, or as a chance to enact this kind of game of life in small scale. Interestingly though, this medieval origin may also highlight some ways in which modern tarot differs from where it started. So there are a number of notable absences in the earlier Italian decks, And this may be due to cards being destroyed or lost. You know, a lot of time has passed in the meantime. But one of the most interesting ones, which Farley expands upon in her book, concerns the figure of the devil, which is one of the most famous tarot cards in the entire deck. The Visconti Forza decks lack the card of the devil. The devil was ubiquitous to later tarot decks. And this may have actually been due to the fact that I did not know of, that there was not a cultural image of the devil in medieval Renaissance Italy as there was today. So the devil at that time was not viewed as having a physical presence and it wasn't viewed as the sort of oppositional force to God. There was no fixed iconography associated with the devil So when he was portrayed, it was in the tattered clothing we would more often associate with the fool. He was portrayed as a figure outside of regular society, kind of just doling out natural punishment as quite an unbiased sort of reaction to your sins. So it was a subject more of mockery than of fear. So The reason we may see an absence of the devil in these earlier decks is that there may be more of an overlap between the devil and um, figures such as the fool than we might believe. 
when we do see in slightly later tarot images that seem to be the devil, it is more likely from their context that they would be representations of prodigies. Um, Prodigies in medieval Italy being unfortunate individuals born with severe birth defects who are thought to be heralds for change or great events. So these births were taken as portents of war and destruction or as evidence of God's anger with human worldliness. So they were not viewed as some demonic coupling or unnatural, but as a natural way in which God communicates with the people through suffering and oftentimes early death. Similarly, death in this time was variously painted as, although skeletal, a bit sort of closer to human than a traditional skeleton. And obviously this was not just ignorance. He would have been well aware of what a human skeleton looked like. But due to this cultural symbol of death as being close to life, as much a part of the society as we are, it was part of this continuity from birth to decay. And the recognisable form of death serves a purpose to kind of highlight this attitude around it. The devil did not have such a form. It did not have such a sort of cultural representation. And therefore, again, it says a little something about the attitudes around it. It was not a figure with form to be feared in the same way that we would assume it would be. It did later come to have this kind of form. And then the devil then sort of reclaimed its rightful place in the tarot, whether you think that's right or wrong. So the hanged man is probably the most enduring aspect of the tarot, owing the biggest debt to the Visconti family that survives to this day. So the hanged man, if you haven't seen it, is typically depicted as a man hanging from one foot from sort of a T-shaped structure, hanging off the ground in public view, basically. So this card is often reinterpreted or corrected, i.e. changed by later occult scholars. They invert the hanged man and say, as it was not instantly recognisable to them, as it was sort of stripped of its context by a couple hundred years, that they would invert it and say that it was a mistake and it was in fact an inverted man sort of balancing on one toe, balancing on a precipice and then sort of interpret it from there. But if you were to view the Hanged Man tarot card as part of its medieval context, you would instantly recognise it as an example of a shame painting. And a shame painting is a form of social punishment meted out against those who can't be legally punished anymore. So people who have, for example, bankrupted themselves or people who are have committed fraud but there's no sort of legal recourse you can take. These were a means to try and control the masses through shame. And they were a absolute favourite practice of Renaissance Italian nobles. So the Viscontis and the Forzas were no strangers to controversy. These families constantly double-crossing each other, treachery left, right and centre. And both had family members who fell victim to shame paintings as a form of punishment. So both had members of their family depicted as parts of shame paintings. So they would have been well aware of this as a cultural image. But it was a practice that fell out of favour and seemingly fell from the public consciousness to the point that when tarot was re-evaluated with the French occult revival, this context was entirely lost and 
Like I said, it was just assumed that it was a mistake on the card maker's front that had to be corrected. Now, Renaissance Italy may have also seeded the association between tarot and astrology, as again, astrology was just particularly popular with um, Renaissance Europe at the time. So it built upon this, as you mentioned, this revival of interest in classical literature. So it came with it, the revival of interest in the works of people like Ptolemy. And Luke Filippo Maria Visconti boasted on his staff a secretary well-versed in astrology. So even when Visconti became Duke of Milan, he would consult his astrologers before taking any political action, which is a form of astrology that you may recognise as electional astrology, which is an ancient form of astrology, and it's interesting to see it being practised in medieval Italy. But astrology also permeated medicine at this time. It permeated contemporary scientific thought. The conjunction of the stars and the planets was thought to cause just all matter of ailments on the Earth. So this concurrent fascination means that even the earliest decks are rife with astrological imagery. And this is a thread which should be later picked up by occultists to attempt to weave tarot into one kind of unifying body of esoteric thoughts. So there are many more absolutely fascinating associations between early tarot and Renaissance Italy, and in particular the lives and beliefs of the Viscontis and the Forzas. But there is too much for me to go over in too much detail here. But in summary, with the structure of tarot, even in its form as a game, its ordered nature and its allegorical power, these ridiculously sort of rich images served to reflect both the broad concerns of the time as well as the very specific views of these noble families. There are some really, really interesting, very specific things about these families that are reflected in these cards, which if you're interested, I urge you to read um, Helen Farley's book on it. But although it was at this time just a pastime for the rich primarily, it had from day one concerned itself with this game of life. The through line all the way through was just this idea of chance, the idea of death coming for you, luck being indiscriminate. You know, the chance and luck associated with success and the equally likely chance of ruin and death. They were influential Italians, very rich, and knew more than many how quickly their luck could change. But as the deck spread from Milan across Europe, its trumps and the allegorical images we mean, primarily when we talk about tarot, changed, and they were reordered to better reflect changing attitudes. It would be some time before a mass-produced standard pack would be made available, and this is arguably the Tarot de Marseille, so made by French and Swiss card makers from around 1700. The Tarot de Marseille would be a blueprint from which most future decks were sort of expanded on. I should mention that the Tarot de Marseille name is a modern proscription. It did not really have its own name, but this Tarot de Marseille is, is a very, very modern naming device. So the Tarot de Marseille differed from the Milanese decks in a number of key ways. So each trump card was labelled, so 
This was not the case with earlier decks, hence the confusion with the the hanged man. Uh, We would not have this confusion if it was named the hanged man. It'd be quite obvious which way it's supposed to go up. But yeah, the the trump cards were labelled, and the trump sequence contained the devil, among other notable changes. So, as you mentioned, the devil has made his reappearance. And throughout the 16th and 17th century, there was now a well-established tradition of defining the devil as a monstrous animal. So the kind of depiction we'd be used to now, the horns, cloven feet, all that sort of stuff. So again, to quote Farley, he was transformed from an incorporeal abstraction to an actual physical manifestation. And as a physical manifestation, as a cultural icon, he found his way into the tarot. But the timeline for tarot has some rather notable gaps. So we have quite a lot of information about the Visconti Forza deck and the family and where it came from. But there is kind of gap in tarot knowledge, and then we'll see it picked up again in the future. There are a few theories for this, and we don't know how true these theories are. But one theory is that tarot was banned for a time. So this is more than likely a later theory that has been sort of retroactively applied to explain this gap in our knowledge of tarot, as tarot, as you mentioned, in in the beginning had nothing to do with divination or any kind of knowledge seeking about the future or the present until its later occult associations. Obviously, it adds a certain provenance to say that tarot was banned and decks were burned in the street and all that sort of stuff. It is more likely that tarot simply fell out of favour for a time. And this, in fact, kind of strengthens some of the arguments we have in that Tarot, when it was taken up again, was kind of stripped of its specific cultural context, implying that there is a sort of gap in between in which these associations were lost, i.e. no one was carrying on this practice and passing down these stories and themes. So it makes sense that tarot may have just simply fallen out of favour for a time, And as we mentioned, it was primarily a pursuit of the rich and it was a game intended to be played and therefore the cards themselves were not in the best position to kind of survive the ravages of time. Oftentimes the rules of tarot as well were not recorded. So it's even a couple hundred years after we get the first tarot decks It's a long time before we get any indication on the rules of tarot, and to this day there is not surviving rules of tarot from which we can figure out how to play the game of tarot from it, because since these rules were just so ubiquitous that they, they needed no documentation, everyone knew them. Like with some of the imagery itself, tarot fell out of favor, and being kind of this practical and partly oral tradition, Aspects of it were lost, aspects of it were decontextualized, and then they were recontextualized for a different purpose in the future, an occult purpose. So you can view the history of tarot as having distinct ages, and the age of occult tarot being as distinct from the age of the game of tarot, as although the structure of the decks remained largely similar to the Visconti Forza and Marseille decks, the context was almost entirely altered. So for a time, tarot would undergo a process by which successive occult scholars 
would uncover what they viewed as the truth of tarot. It would correct the mistakes. I hope you can hear the uh, sarcasm. Correct the mistakes owing to its lowly life as a card game and elevate it back to its true status, all subject, of course, to their own theories. So we will explore some of these changes now, although I will have to skip over loads of details as... Honestly, it gets super confusing because every single person seems to come up and completely reorder things and change the naming of everything, and it's a nightmare. But even the word tarot was given a false and elongated history under its occult reappropriation. So our guy again, our friend, Antoine Cordes-Gabelin, wrote that the word was derived from an Egyptian phrase tarosli meaning the royal way or the royal way of life and then eliphas levi wrote that tarot was derived from the tetragram of kabbalist which variously expressed so rota torah tarot etc embraced the meaning of both god and man tarot was reimagined fittingly from the ground up as underlining the grand theme that each person brought to tarot as they understood it So each was singularly placed to see its true power and potential, and each prescribed history to it to serve their own needs. So obviously you can't outright say that they are wrong to do this. One of the most valuable things about modern tarot is its flexibility, its its ability to serve multiple needs and a variety of peoples. But there is a fact that for a while the history of tarot was pretty much entirely people telling others what tarot was meant to mean to them, which I feel is kind of antithetical to the whole thing. But So the popularisation of esoteric tarot started with Antoine Cours de Gabelin and Jean-Baptiste Alliette. So he, Alliette, renamed himself Itaya, uh, which he did by very cleverly just reversing his own surname. So he plays on the idea of the reversible nature of tarot and all that it speaks on, and they were part of the French occult revival of the late 18th century. They used the tarot de Marseille as a blueprint, and they began to apply tarot in the divination purposes we know of today, and other occult purposes also. And again, it was part of the French occult revival. It is interesting that tarot always seems to pop up at a time when culture is obsessively looking backwards for guidance. But by the beginning of the 19th century, France was absolutely obsessed with their new leader, Napoleon Bonaparte, and his wife, Empress Josephine. And Empress Josephine's interest in cartomancy catapulted it into the public consciousness. So legend has it that she would regularly meet with French cartomancer Marie-Anne Lenormand, and she was believed to have used the deck designed by Aliette, and there is a debate to this day if there are any preceding divinatory decks at use in Europe. It seems like this deck created by Aliette was the first one. Now, Lenormand gathered great suspicion, but her prophecies were said to have been eerily accurate. So from this, we get the probably apocryphal story of Bernadotte, a general to Napoleon, who in 1804 went to Lenormand asking her a trick question to try to expose her as a spy or a trickster. 
But as legend goes, the cards see through his lies instantly, and the last card that she draws as part of her reading for Benedot was the card, Death, therefore bringing into question whether Benedot would have to overthrow his master Napoleon, a prophecy which would later come true. So tarot in popular culture maintained its association with death, but transformed into a tool for divination and wove legends along the way. So Lenormand was apparently gifted her deck by a group of Romani and entrusted to safeguard the ancient wisdom it contained. So this is a theory straight from our guy, de Gabelin. The idea that the destroyed libraries and wisdom of Egypt distilled into the tarot deck as the Book of Toth De Gebelin believed that tarot's origins as a lowly card game were precisely the reason for this, why it had survived to the modern day, why it was overlooked as nothing more than an amusement, and therefore why this information had endured. It was he, of course, who he viewed as best to unravel the encoded esoteric knowledge within. And the decontextualized, often medieval imagery of these early tarot appeared almost exotic to these French occult revivalists who were sort of primed to seek symbols of antiquity all around them. In a way, they were kind of looking too far back. They were looking back to ancient Egypt when really they should have been looking back just a couple of hundred years to Italy. But this process of decoding the tarot was set in motion. So Attire picked up de Gebelin's work in many ways where he left off keeping this ancient Egyptian history angle and expanding on it. So he circulated his belief that the pictorial cards were in fact a corruption of a book written in hieroglyphs. So Attire was the first to issue a tarot deck specifically designed for occult purposes around the year 1789. And in keeping with the unsubstantiated belief that such cards were derived from the Book of Toth, Tyre's tarot contained themes related to ancient Egypt. So he loved de Gabelin's ideas and he set about giving these cards new meanings and starting to decode the knowledge found within. But to quote, though Attire was responsible for making tarot popular as a divinatory device, it was Magus Eliphas Levi who incorporated tarot into his syncretistic schema of occult philosophies. Levi's aim was a grand one, to unite the work of all significant Western scholars into one cohesive theory and worldview. Quite grand. He also recognised Tarot's utility as a divinatory tool. It was the ability to reflect the truth of the entire universe that made Tarot valuable towards Levi's theory. So Eliphas Levi was the first to publicly associate tarot with Kabbalah and Hebrew associations. So again, to quote, Kabbalah describes the nature of God and his divine emanations, which are represented diagrammatically as the tree of life. So the particular ordered structure of the tarot strengthened this association once more with the ten sephiroth. And they showed how the world developed gradually from nothing, but also symbolised primordial man who is but a shadow of heavenly man. And under Levi, the devil was once again transformed, this time into Baphomet. So a horned figure pointed to the sky with one hand and the ground with another, 
recalling the legendary wisdom of the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below. So to quote, a direct reference to the idea of the microcosm echoing the macrocosm, an allusion to the doctrine of correspondences. So occult tarot was hugely indebted to this idea of correspondences, that the idea of the world of the cards echoing the world at large and disentangling the processes by which they can and cannot influence each other. So this is the first time we're starting to see hints of tarot as a form of magic, basically practical magic. So whereas in France, the French occultists were situating tarot in their own context, in England, with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, tarot was woven in with occult Freemasonry, Hermeticism, the Celtic Revival, and Christian mysticism, among other things. The richly adaptable form of tarot found expression for all of these. Folklorists became obsessed with tales of ghosts and supernatural occurrences, and this gave a decidedly occultist bent to portrayals of Celtic society. And I feel one of the things that you will come across most strongly from the decks of this time is this kind of Celtic imagery, and specifically Arthurian imagery. I know when I looked at it with a couple of friends of mine, that was one of the things that jumped out at us is this sort of Arthurian Celtic kind of imagery is very familiar to us as Brits. So a number of notable societies were founded in this era, the era of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, such as SPR or the Society for Psychical Research, which I spoke of in my series on poltergeists. There is also the formation of the Theosophical Society, which is another society that's kind of syncretic, just aiming to try and unite everything. This idea that the more we learn, the more we know about all these cultures, this need to try and bring them all together into one huge, grand, unifying theory. All of these societies seem to be trying to do this one thing. But the influence that honestly cannot be understated is the huge popularity of Freemasonry and the highly structured secret occult society that it was that captured the imagination. So once again, this structure, this hierarchy of the tarot deck, the order of the cards, was made to align with the structure of the levels of Freemason adherence. So there was an order and a structure to climb the ranks as a Freemason. There were layers of thoughts and theory that built upon each other in, again, a unifying theory. And it was not hard to align this structure with that of a cult tarot if you kind of bend it to your will. Now, the Theosophical Society and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn explicitly modelled their society structures on those of esoteric Freemasonry. And it was Freemason Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers who adopted this name, aspiring to a proud Celtic heritage of dubious provenance, who published a hugely influential book furthering to deepen tarot's occult history. And it was called The Tarot, its occult signification, use in fortune telling and method of play. And this was published in 1888. So this work built upon the theories of all of those that I have mentioned beforehand. So these 
theories would be picked up and adapted as a result of his involvement with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Now, the Golden Dawn arose in England towards the end of the 19th century as a reaction against the strict scientific rationalism and the shortcomings of conventional religion of the period. And the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn recognised the similarities between the spiritual journey of the tarot, the tree of life of Kabbalah, and the alchemical path to the Philosopher's Stone. So their ritual structure and learning were all drawn from a mysterious manuscript of unknown origin, absolute classic secret society stuff. It was a rigidly hierarchical society, teaching the theory and the practice of occultism, and tarot was therefore an absolutely natural fit. So tying the structure of tarot back to Levi's ideas with Kabbalah and the ten numerals of the suit cards representing the ten sephiroths, Golden Dawn took it even further and attempted to align correspondences between the pathways of the Tree of Life and the attributes of the trump cards. Needless to say that tarot was once again moulded to suit this purpose. The adherents to Golden Dawn believed in not only the divinatory powers of tarot, but in its powers to influence the present and the future. So tarot was explicitly within the Golden Dawn associated with magical practice. Now it was a member of Golden Dawn, Arthur Edward Waite, who, along with artist Pamela Coleman-Smith, would produce probably the single most influential piece of the tarot puzzle, the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. This was the first commercially available tarot deck in England and still the most popular, and it can be seen as the kind of quintessential tarot deck. The imagery from this set became so ubiquitous as to saturate popular culture and for most serve as the primary way in which tarot is approached. Now, Waite rejected the Kabbalah Association, but agreed with the occult connection of tarot and producing the Rider-Waite-Smith deck it was a deck to be used exclusively for occult purposes. So it added much more richly detailed imagery to the minor arcana than, say, the Marseille deck. So to make it easier for use for divination and self-development, the pip cards, the number cards, the ones that were typically not really illustrated or barely illustrated, they were transformed to have their own allegorical meanings. Therefore, the deck at this point was transformed to a point that it would be impossible to use for the game for which it was originally based on if we knew the rules. So Tarot's transformation from game to a cult device was therefore complete, you could say, with the publishing of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. Now there is one person who I will mention in this very, very brief rundown of Tarot history, as they were an important player in the history of Tarot, no pun intended, Alistair Crowley. So Alistair Crowley is a name that comes up over and over again. The more I read, the more I hear his name. He is, was, an English occultist and goddamn fucking maniac and creator of the Toth tarot deck. And you remember the Book of Toth as this book of hermetic knowledge supposedly encoded within tarot. Crowley once again reimagined the tarot deck into the Toth tarot decks who tried to sort of decode this information into his own deck 
very prescriptive. Again, it was all to sort of serve his need to unite all of these divergent systems and mythologies into his own one worldview. Very complicated. I'm not going to talk too much about him as I will come back to him in a future episode. So tarot was just one of the devices that gained new popularity with the New Age, or the Age of Aquarius, a time in which a new planetary point of convergence was said to herald new ways of thinking and new ways of believing. So once again, quoting, Aquarian values represented a re-enchantment and rediscovery of ancient wisdom. So I'm sure this sounds quite familiar by now on. It was a move, once again, away from traditional, organised religious institutions, a move towards something more individual and more personal. But these ideas, this time, were strengthened by contemporary psychological ideas, where concepts such as Carl Jung's archetypes theory were incorporated into the search for this grand unified theory. So archetypes and their associated meanings are the apparent ubiquitousness of certain images of the tarot and certain images of media, ignoring, of course, the fact that tarot has been adapted and transformed innumerable times over the previous decades. It seemed to imply with these ubiquitous images that there were some innate images, some innate concepts to humanity, and whether physical or mental, there seemed to be some innate ways in which humans viewed and interpreted their lives. And decoding this, this time through a psychoanalytical lens, could be the key to understanding it all. So crucially this time, it was individual who was tasked with unravelling the secrets. And the tarot became a psychotherapeutic device for everyone. So the focus of modern tarot is primarily on self-development, not the idea that the cards or a specific use of them could influence the present or the future, but more could be used to get a different perspective on the world. So think again of the hanged man. So this becomes less a medieval shame painting, a sort of form of social control, and now a suggestion to look at the world from a different perspective. Death in this context represents the change of one state into another. It is all just a matter of a change of perspective. So the order of the tarot deck remains crucial, in many ways more so. The current numbering of the major arcana paint a narrative reflecting life's journey and its obstacles. So the unnumbered fool, in this case, represents us, a morally neutral figure, journeying down a path towards spiritual fulfilment. A reader may interpret a card for someone, but they may also be read yourself in isolation as a method for personal development. So opinions differ on the most useful way to use tarot. So some say the use of someone skilled with the cards is key, that the hands of the shuffler are influenced by some subconscious influence. So many talk of the decks speaking to them on some instinctive level. Hence, the shuffler of the deck might be important. There may be a subconscious signal of some kind that you're picking up on when you're shuffling a deck of tarot cards, similar to when you're dowsing for water. But the biggest takeaway for those who regularly practice tarot in its modern form is this. 
It's not magic. It's psychology. There is something of use in this human communication, whether it is between the reader and the querent, the person asking the question of the cards, or whether it is a solitary pursuit. Even one highly skilled in the art of reading the cards must rely on this communication with the person asking the question. The subtle bodily communication gained by sharing a table and handling these enigmatic cards. So thank you for joining me once again as we continued our exploration on the spiritual topic that is tarot. So as it's always the case, it seems, the more I learn about these esoteric topics, the more respect I have for them as invaluable historical records. And the more I think we should endeavor wherever possible to record what we know of these games that are so ubiquitous we assume everyone knows them because it just doesn't take very long for them to lose their context. And it's only through luck and chance that they may be preserved and reinvigorated in the future. This has been Sarah from Weird Horizon. You can find me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast, where I don't really do much, but I will do soon, I promise. I have just been snuggled up in a research hole for a while now, just having a grand old time, but good things are coming. For now, I have absolutely enjoyed the hell out of this. I'm sorry it's so long and it took so long to come out, but hope you enjoy. For now, bye friends.